Welcome back to the Health Call Radio Hour. If you've got a question, you don't have to give blood to get the answer. Just drop us a line on the Health Call website at healthcall.live. That's healthcall.live. Or message us on the Health Call Facebook page. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent Lee Kelso. All right. Well, now that you're all caught up on the news and the weather, let's shift our focus to something I think all of us can agree on. How we pay for health care in America is a mess. It has been said that America's health care system really doesn't produce health. It really doesn't care. and It's not a system. How did we get to a place where if you are sick enough to lose your job, you also risk losing health care just when you need it most? Or how about this one? If you fight to raise yourself out of poverty, you risk losing coverage under Medicaid. A new book called We've Got You Covered is an interesting look at this big mess and what may be a solution. Economist and MIT professor Amy Finkelstein is the co-author. So let's kick things off with her looking at how in the world so many Americans came to rely on their employers for health insurance. Two words, historical accident. Uh, there is no there is no sense in which a bunch of uh, time men, wise men, sat down and decided that the most sensible way to provide health insurance was through the workplace and let's set it up. Rather, as we discuss uh, in, in the book, uh, it arose as a historical accident that during World War II, the government Im imposed uh, wage and price controls in an effort to deal with you know, shortages in, in labor when um, many people were off fighting in the war. Uh, employers, as always, needed to find creative ways within the law to attract and retain employees. And so one thing they noted is that while uh, price controls had been put on wages, uh, benefits were not being uh, capped. And so they started offering health insurance as a way to improve the compensation package for prospective employees without violating the law. Shortly after World War II, uh, this was actually codified into the tax code, uh, making the, the, the Internal Revenue Service ruled that such benefits, like uh, non-wage benefits like health insurance, weren't subject to income tax. Hmm. So in other words, if I'm your employer and I give you a dollar of wages, uh, you have to pay tax on that. Your take-home pay is going to be less than a dollar. However, if I pay a dollar towards your health insurance premiums, uh, you get that full dollar towards your health insurance premiums. It's not subject to income tax. And so that tax loophole or tax subsidy, which has grown to be uh, $300 billion a year in tax expenditures, uh, is the primary reason why we have this, you know, I think largely unpalatable situation of most private health insurance being tied to the workplace. Yeah. And as I indicated there, you know, the, the big challenge is that ties you to a job that you may not like, you may not find rewarding. Um, it puts you at great risk if you get so sick you can't work and then you lose coverage. I mean, th that whole situation really is kind of a mess. Let's paint this picture a little bit differently. If this were a house that we're living in that has been updated and patched and fixed a million different times, suddenly it's not uncomfortable anymore. You come to a key point, right? You have to decide, do I tear it down or do I continue to remodel? Are we at the teardown state with our health care system? Absolutely. In fact, we wanted the title of our book to be Teardown, but we were told that wasn't that was too dismal and we needed okay. to be more uplifting. But yes, it's fundamentally a teardown. And part of the reason was to continue that housing analogy, it was never 
designed and deliberately constructed. So it's not like, oh, at one point we sat down and consciously designed a health insurance system that maybe was right, you know, in 1965. And then now things have changed and we need to do some renovation. Rather, uh, it was it emerged haphazardly over the last 50, 70 years as different issues became uh, particularly salient, either you know, because there was an infectious disease epidemic, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. a tuberculosis epidemic or more re- recently COVID or a particular medical technology was developed that was life-saving but unaffordable or a particular group gained, you know, saliency and issues were thrust before Congress and an- and patch by patch another uh, program was put in place. So we have a series of health insurance programs that cover people with specific diseases. So a different program, if you have end-stage renal disease or tuberculosis or Lou Gehrig's disease or the list, breast cancer, the list goes on and on. Uh, different programs to cover people if they're sufficiently poor or sufficiently old or disabled. But all of these patches that were put on in response to particular political issues that emerged themselves fall far short uh, of accomplishing their goals because whenever you have a series of patches, there are always going to be gaps at the seams. Mm -hmm. Some of those gaps are the ones you alluded to already that uh, people can lose coverage um, because they no longer fit their particular eligibility requirement. And this is really perverse that, that health insurance, whose very purpose is to provide a measure of economic security in an uncertain world is itself highly uncertain. So as we document in the book, most attention focuses on the, you know, say one in 10 Americans under 65 who are uninsured at any given moment in time. But in fact, a much higher share of Americans, one in four Americans, will have some period of time without health insurance coverage over a two-year period. And that's because of all these different routes to eligibility. So you mentioned the example of you know, if you get insurance through your employer and then you lose your job or change your job, maybe because you fell sick or maybe for other reasons, you can lose your insurance coverage. If, you, if you're covered by one of the, these many public programs I mentioned, you can lose your coverage because your income changes, your age changes, you move states, or in the case of these many, many disease-specific coverages, really, I think quite perversely, uh, if you get better... That's wonderful. You're now in remission for your cancer, but then you've lost your coverage because you qualified because you had, say, breast cancer. Our experience with this patchwork approach shows why further patches or, to continue your analogy, renovations are just not going to cut it. It would be very tempting to say, let's just expand coverage for the remaining people who aren't eligible. Let's fix a few other, you know, problems with the system that's so much easier than than to, you know, uh, tear down and rebuild. The problem is, you know, that even if everyone is eligible for insurance, that doesn't mean everyone will be covered. When you have these many different programs and pathways to eligibility, what we find is that about six in 10 of people who are currently uninsured are in fact already eligible for free or heavily, heavily discounted coverage. They just don't have it because they don't realize they're eligible or which program they're eligible for, or they couldn't assemble the documentation to show that they're eligible. Or, And this is one that happens a lot and is coming up now a lot with um, the end of the public health emergency. If, you, if you're eligible because of a particular program, then periodically 
we have to make sure you still qualify for that program. And so then we send you every year or so additional paperwork to show you still meet the income requirement or the disease requirement or what have you. And if you don't realize you need to refill out that paperwork or you fail to assemble all your documents, you can lose coverage even if you haven't lost your eligibility. Okay, so there's a look at how this crazy patchwork of good intentions results in a health insurance environment everyone realizes needs to change. But change to what? Economist and author Amy Finkelstein's new book suggests America tear down our broken health insurance system and grow a plan that covers everyone for free within a set budget, but still gives giving you options to upgrade. We'll explore how that might work when we come back with more of the Health Call Radio Hour. This is the Health Call Radio Hour, where treatments are always free, the stethoscope is never cold, and you don't have to wear an exam gown. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. We are putting America's crazy healthcare system under the microscope today, looking for how to fix the broken way we pay for everything. Amy Finkelstein is an economist and co-author of a book called We've Got You Covered. It's filled with stories of how the current system is built on good intentions, but costs a fortune and is filled with pitfalls for everyone. She points out that health insurance reform is no guarantee we'll be a healthier nation. Even Sweden, with its vast public health system, has wide disparities driven by health choices we make personally. Still, she says it is time for America to tear it down and start all over, start from scratch, creating a basic universal coverage plan everyone can use for free. And she thinks we can get there without a political food fight. I think often when people hear universal coverage, they think progressives, liberals, uh, you know, this is a, a progressive agenda. But as we detail it, uh, a lot in the book, this argument for universal coverage as, a, as the most efficient way to, to uh, make good on this social commitment to provide essential uh, medical care regardless of resources has been acknowledged and embraced across the political spectrum. We're talking here about a, a system in which I don't have to apply or enroll. It's automatically available. I, it's not going to cost me anything for basic services. But, but how, how basic will those services be? Are we going to run into that slippery slope of, well, we'll add this, and now we're going to add that, and now this and then that? I mean, that- so, so I, can't, I don't have a crystal ball to say, you know, when our policy is enacted, whether we'll run into that slippery slope. I can say that it, the the idea is for it to be actually quite basic. Um, it, the it, you know so it would provide essential medical care automatically and without any patient fees or copays. But you know with uh, wait times that are longer than uh, what pe- for non urgent care than what people with private insurance uh, typically experience, uh, it, it, and you know perhaps less choice of doctor or ability to get any test you want than people with traditional Medicare currently experience. So in terms of the benefit package, it looks more like Medicaid, uh, the public health insurance program for low-income individuals, um, but with the crucial ability that people who want more are able to supplement or top up, whereas currently if you're on Medicaid and you want to get to see a doctor faster than you know what you can through Medicaid, you can't just pay the doctor a little more. You have to go and out to entirely outside the system. To your question of will, would we get you know creep in the basic, uh, 
that's in some sense up to us as a society. It's There's a minimum that's required how much more generous we want to make the basic coverage as opposed to saving that money for, say, lower taxes or spending on education or highways or what have mm-hmm. you. That's a political decision. One thing we do insist on is that uh, the basic coverage come with a budget. You know, we can vote as a society to raise that budget, but in when there is, in any given year, there's a budget and decisions have to be made about what to cover and what not to fit in that budget. When it we comes, don't have a health care budget exactly. as a nation today. It's, it's completely radical for health care. Yeah. It's not how any other country functions. But yes, when we talk about, say, the Medicare budget, uh, we don't actually mean the budget in the normal sense in which we talk about a budget in the sense of a budget constraint. Here's what you have to live within. Rather, we're speaking about what Medicare did happen to spend last year or what we project it will spend next year. With Medicare, the public health insurance program for the elderly and the disabled, there is no budget constraint. Uh, anything that's covered patients and their physicians can choose to to uh, get, and the government pays the bill. And if they choose to get more of it, those bills go up. I can hear this the squeals now of inequality. This is not fair. Uh, if I can't afford it, I'm stuck in, in some bare concrete block clinic as opposed to the hospital with a waterfall in the lobby. We're not going to get past that, right? I mean, it's just going to be two systems. Yes, it will be two systems, but I will say, uh, and it's very important, and we discuss in the book, that the key thing we're concerned about is that the adequacy of the basic system be maintained. And we talk about how other countries, basically every other high-income country also has these two systems that except for a few Canadian provinces and and North Korea and and Cuba, every country allows individuals to supplement um, and, you know, uh, the the basic system. So it's unavoidable. It's also, it does raise real concerns about the adequacy of the basic system, how we, you know, if if enough people go into the supplemental system, will that erode either the financing of the basic system Mm -hmm. or political support for it, or just making sure there's enough high quality medical providers providing in the basic system. And we talk about how that's both a real issue, but a surmountable one that other countries have dealt with successfully through a combination of making sure funding is sufficient and uh, putting in place regulations to make sure there's an adequate supply of physicians. And beyond that, our view is, uh, to the extent you're concerned about inequality, and actually, personally, I'm very concerned about inequality, but the place to tackle that is not in the healthcare system, but in the overall tax system. If you're, If we want a more equal society. We need more progressive taxation. That's, that's distinct from the question of how do we fulfill our commitments uh, mm-hmm. in the healthcare space in particular. You know, I mean, one of every the other... That, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, one of the things that struck me in watching global news coverage of the COVID pandemic was how I saw in hospitals around the world, they're clean, they're tidy, they're neat, they're efficient, but they're basic. They're not as fancy as the hospitals here in the United States. And and that really was driven home by, wow, okay, I can see one of the cost drivers in our system. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but also, let, let's be clear, there there's two dimensions of that. One is the quality of medical care provided, and the other is the non-medical amenities. Um, and it's mm-hmm. the latter that we think can be very basic. And I think that's what you were seeing when you were, exactly. you know, and so we give the example of Singapore, um, which is one one of the countries that has both a universal basic system and the ability to top up. And in the basic system, you know, it's free to to and automatic for everyone. Uh, If you go to the hospital, I think you're put in a 
a typical room may have 10 beds. And uh, in a notoriously hot and humid climate, their uh, documentation refers to these rooms as being naturally ventilated. So that's a nice <laughs> euphemism. Okay. Um, but if you, if as many people do, you buy supplemental coverage, you're going to still get the same surgery with the same physician. But then afterwards, you can be wheeled into a private room with a private bath and air conditioning and high-speed internet and delicious food. Australia has a similar system. So again... Our, our our commitment, our social obligation is about essential medical care. It's not necessarily about all of these other non-medical amenities, which are certainly nice to have. So we need to set out and be clear that our goal is the equality of care, not the equality of the experience. Yeah, I'd say it's the adequacy of care. Um, okay, yeah, it. but yes. Okay. What do you say, say to doctors, doctors who are uh, going to look at this and say, this puts my, my entire livelihood at risk, yes. and how uh, is it fair that I'm going to spend the huge amount of money that is required to become an MD with an advanced specialization uh, if, my, if my income is going to be restricted? It's not at all clear that anyone's livelihood is going to be put at risk um, in the sense, uh, if anything, uh, you know, could view this as an expansion of coverage. We estimate that about two thirds of people would actually buy supplemental coverage. You know, mm -hmm. uh, basically anyone who currently has private insurance or the elderly. In some ways, our system is going to be much better. The, even the basic system would be much better for them. They don't have to risk of losing coverage or having high uh, medical bills that they have to pay themselves for their so-called covered care. But it would be a lot more basic in all the ways we talked about. So they'd buy supplemental. For people who are currently on Medicaid, the basic, as we said, is very similar to what they had, but they can supplement it. And for people who are uninsured, uh, it's actually obviously much better. Excuse me, much better. So I guess the first thing I'd say is, you know, you, you can't have it both ways. Some people are worried that the system is going to create inequality, uh, but if but to the extent it, it will entrench or not, not combat inequality, I don't think it necessarily has to have a first order uh, detrimental effect on physicians and their income. The second thing I'd say is that any reform, and particularly a radical one like a teardown, um, is going to be disruptive. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's incumbent upon us to design a transition path that helps smooth that. And part of that, you know, could be that, you know, as is often done with policies, something is announced now and phased in gradually. So it's not like, you know, you just you know you just got out of your 15 years of medical school and training and now you suddenly have a you know the system turned on a dime economist amy finkelstein and her co-author don't have a specific proposal they're selling nor are they asking you to support a specific piece of legislation that's not been written yet their new book called we've got you covered simply sets the stage for conversations they hope will lead america into getting in sync with the rest of the world to provide basic health care with upgrade options to let you have an experience that is as fancy or as bare bones as you like. I do hope you'll watch the video and leave a comment or go to the website and shoot me your thoughts. I read every message and you'll always get a personal reply. We are back again next week and I hope you are too. You've been listening to the Health Call Radio Hour. The discussion of conditions and treatments on this program is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment by a healthcare professional who knows you and your health needs. 
Find the podcast of today's episode wherever you get your podcasts or watch extended video versions of today's interviews on the Health Call website at healthcall.live. While you're there, drop us a line to ask a question or suggest a topic for a future broadcast. Join us each week on this station for another edition of the Health Call Radio Hour. Podcasts by Federated Media.